Hi, this is Mark, and you're listening to episode five of Nerdology. And my very special guest today is Eric Stadnick. Hello, Mark. Hey, Eric, how are you doing? Doing well. Very happy to be asked back. The returning guest. I yes, mean, thank I'm you. So Friend pleased. of the show. Friend of the show. You've now earned that accolade. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we it went really well last time. We've had a lot of really positive feedback. So thank you ever so much for coming on last time. Uh, oh, thank you. People it was a really great pleasure. Mm. Thank you. Well, I enjoyed doing it, so that kind of made my day. So hopefully this one will go pretty well. We've got um, one small piece of business, business to cover before we get started on our topic for today. Uh, Andrew Lewin on Twitter very helpfully pointed out that I made a bit of a gaffe in the last episode. We were talking about uh, Vertigo and Rear Window, and me in my woolly-headedness when I was watching the DVD extras, I somehow managed to work out that this was Hitchcock's first movie in the States, um, which isn't the case. I think I must have misheard it. It's the first of a bunch of movies he did for a new studio. So, um, yeah, he rather helpfully pointed out that we missed out about 15 years' worth of really good Hitchcock movies. So, <laughs> sorry, Hitch, wherever you are. And uh, thank you, Andrew, for that wonderful feedback. Very constructive. Uh, we'll speak on Twitter sometime soon. Uh, so, <laughs> we're going to focus today on Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Oh, him! Yeah, that guy. That you must guy. Have heard him. Yeah, the one who did the Muppets Christmas Carol. I like what he did with Kermit. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, that's that's a staple in our household. Every Christmas Eve, you've got to watch it. <laughs> he is probably, you know, it via the Christmas Carol and to a certain extent, uh, Oliver Twist and a certain other stories, the best known novelist I think in the English language. Mm. His his stories and his, some of his his jokes and things are just so pervasive at this point. They're they're hard to get out of your head. Yeah, he's certainly for his time. He was probably one of the most fam- famous people on the planet. So, uh, yeah, he he has a real legacy. I think if you can imagine him around today, I'm sure he would have been, you know, one of the the great writers. I don't know what he would have been doing. Uh, he probably might have been doing. I think uh, he'd been doing TV. Yeah. I think he'd be doing HBO. Uh huh. Yeah, I could that, see that. That's just my guess. I I think the sort of serialized novel format that he mm. took to so strongly would find its most natural modern day uh, analog in a big old show like your game of thrones or your sopranos or whatever depending yeah. but of course much funnier because he was always kind of throwing in really good gags he's a very witty fellow very witty fellow even when mm. it didn't make any sense to do so mm-hmm. so yeah this kind of got started through a conversation on twitter um there was Myself and you and my other half, Amy. Hi, Amy. Hello. And she's in the background. <laughs> typing away. Uh, yeah, you were kind of. We kind of got into conversation, and I think it went something along the lines of, "There's a general feeling of shame for the fact that between us, we hadn't read an awful lot of Dickens." Mm-hmm. And was it you that suggested we should do Oliver Twist? No, no, I don't think I was. I think I was trying to push for one of the later, more mature novels. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think it was actually Your Good Lady Wife. All right, we're going to blame Amy for this one then. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah. the general idea that we needed to read more Dickens and, and we came across, we realized that none of us read Oliver Twist mm. and it's standing as a sort of towering figure in literature and in a weird way in children's literature, we figured we might as well go mm. for it. Now, this is my moment to be really smug, because in our household, we have one person who's an absolute book fanatic, 
and we have one person who's not. I'll let you guess which is which. But I think you should probably gather by now it's probably Amy that's the bookworm. And I finished the book pretty sharpish. And she was really struggling with it. She had a real, I was going to say love-hate relationship with the, the book, but I think it was more of a hate-hate relationship <laughs> with it. Can I just ask how many books you read since finishing that one? Uh, that's not the point. We're talking about Oliver Twist. <laughs> <laughs> I think this could be a, a podcasting first, a domestic. On the... uh, domestic in the middle, yeah. Yeah, and, cool. Uh, and I, like a terrible person, while I bought a copy... I mm-hmm. didn't actually, months ago when we first had this conversation, and yeah. I picked it up, and I just so was not in the mood. And so read, I've read about six or seven books between when we first discussed it, and then when I actually, over the course of a few nights this week, um, read actually on my Kindle, which is what I think finally I'll made get it. get you. Yeah, fancy schmancy. Mm. Well, the thing is, that if you don't have one of these e-readers, what's amazing about them, to me at least, as a lover of classic literature, is... Mm-hmm. Almost all the classics are free. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And it was just like, oh, great! And so I now have like three hundred books on my Kindle that I need to get through. But it was yeah, like I've I can do Oliver Twist. I've done the same on my iPad. I've got a, a couple of apps on there, so I download. I'm such a cheapskate. I won't buy new books. I'll just download the free ones. <laughs> so I've got lots of really classic stuff to get through. Yeah, it's a lot of great stuff. Why bother with the money until you really find mm. something you want? So. Um, and I think that enabled me to not know where I was in the story because unless you check at the bottom, you yeah. kind of see continual text. And so I didn't have that sort of overawing sense of, oh, God, this is going to be long and painful and Dickensian. And yeah. It, it's uh, I found it kind of zipped along for me, but maybe I'm in the minority on that one. I think once I got into it, the his amazing ability to kind of drive a story forward you know using the cliffhanger ending chapters and things Mm. like that really really did uh propel me through like i said once i started it only took me a few nights you know i finished friday evening Mm -hmm. and had only you're a power reader i am i'm a bit of a power reader um but that's partially because i don't watch tv and things like that i only do dvds and whatnot so when i get a book i'm supposed to read i just kind of read it Mm mm-hmm so that's what happened, and now we've read Oliver Twist. So I guess we should probably talk about it. it at some point. I suppose. <laughs> Did you want to say anything more about Dickens? Well, yeah, I mean, he was quite a... I don't know, he was something a bit different. There's not too many authors who would kind of do sort of international trips to do... Or maybe they are, I don't know. I can't think of too many modern at authors. At the time, I think he was the first. Mm. Um, Oscar Wilde later on in the 1800s did a famous and very popular tour of America, which is hysterical. He did like the American West. Can you imagine Oscar Wilde doing a reading in a cowboy town in the middle of Colorado? But it happened. He was he was also known for the odd witty quip. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And Americans do like British people to have a sense of wit about them. Hmm. So yeah, so Dickens did tours of America and and then the UK. And yeah. did many, many readings. Um, and fairly late in his life, actually, he excerpted a section from this book and rewrote it to do as a dramatic reading. Right. Um, and it became one of his most popular, even though apparently ladies fainted and had to be carried out of the auditorium whenever he did it. Oh, blimey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I live in Exeter, which is down in the southwest of England. Uh, it's kind of, if you're unfamiliar, it's kind of not a million miles away from Baskerville country, if you've seen the old classic Sherlock Holmes movies, that kind of thing. So we're in the country more. Uh, but Dickens was 
uh, quite a regular visitor to Exeter, which is where I live, and uh, he used to come down and do readings. I think his first trip down was as a reporter, because he used to be a, a reporter for a newspaper before he got into writing novels. And uh, I think he met his first wife in Exeter, because uh, he had a, a fairly unusual love life for someone of that age, because mm-hmm. he eventually ended up divorcing her, didn't he, which was not perhaps the done thing at the time. No, not at all. Especially for someone in his position as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he, he spent quite a bit of time in a place called the Turk's Head, which <laughs> if you're familiar with Exeter, you would know it had, well, certainly as my days as a youngster, it had a bit of a reputation for being pretty rough. Maybe it didn't back in his time, but apparently he was inspired uh, to create some of the characters um, in Pickwick Papers from sitting in the Turk's Head and observing the people in the bar, which I thought was he, pretty cool. He seems that type, definitely, to just sort of go someplace, maybe a bit out of the way, and a bit, uh, a bit maybe not as um, upper class as his money would allow him to sort of observe, observe humanity and then see the workings of hmm. people and then re- represent them in, their, in his books, which his characterization, not necessarily here, but mm. in... In, he's well known for just creating some of the most vivid characters ever in Western literature. Just phenomenally strong impressions of people that kind of linger with you. Mm, and as a person, I think he had a real sense of um, moral justice, do you think? Yeah, no, definitely. He uh, started writing right around the beginning of the, uh, the Victorian age proper, like mm. the reign of Queen Victoria, and uh, was one of the strongest advocates through his writings, both his novels and like other works that for better treatment of the poor, for kind of reformation of the systems, um, for just this idea that we cannot live in a society where we kind of have this very um, Jeremy Bentham style, you know, society is designed to create the greatest happiness for the greatest number as opposed to caring for the least among us. He seemed to really hmm. believe that you had to care for the least among you. Which definitely comes across in this book. Oh, Yes. So I don't know if we really need to... Do we need to go over the synopsis of the story? I think if I anyone's going to take the time to listen to this... I think we do. Not in great length because it's mm. too convoluted to do otherwise, but because I thought I knew this story. That's, yeah, that's one thing that... Um, there's a particular scene, a pretty famous one, um, which I thought I knew, and then it turned out I didn't. Yeah, and there are a lot of people, I think, who think they know the story because they've seen Oliver. Mm. It's not Oliver. <laughs> no, definitely not. There's no singing. <laughs> no, not so much spontaneous dancing and singing. No, and I don't even, you know, so so we have Oliver Twist, who's a born um, of a dying mother in a workhouse and is named Oliver Twist by, or named Oliver by his mother and then Twist by the Beatle, mm-hmm. a Mr. Bumble. Yeah, what a, a horrid, man. horrid creature he is. Yeah, he's he's kind of a character of two halves as well. He, he changes he, he, later in the book. He gets his comeuppance. Yeah, well, we'll, everyone we'll come does to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he grows up very poor in these workhouses, and and you know, and the whole idea of the poor law in effect at the time was essentially to make being very poor very very unattractive, mm. and they did that by essentially starving people <laughs> in many ways. Yeah, they they like to really get the the most out of their gruel supplies by watering down as much as possible. Yeah, and so the the famous famous scene that everyone knows from Oliver Twist, which is he, um, because he doesn't know any better, essentially asks for more, mm. 
and and it just oh my god ask for more and then the the you know the workhouse matron talks to the beetle about it and the beetle takes it to the board whoever sees everything and they decide we need to get rid of the lover twist he's such a troublemaker he asks for more um and so he gets after a failed attempt to get apprentice off of a chimney sweep which is a weird little interlude that doesn't do anything. Yeah, it doesn't really go anywhere, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, except it shows that there's at least some kindness in the world because hmm. the magistrate who was to approve the apprenticeship just by chance happens to look at Oliver and sees Oliver is miserable and so hmm. decides, um, no. He's like the only nice judge in the entire book. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Oliver does get apprenticed to Mr. Sourberry, who's an undertaker. Hmm. And amusingly enough, Oliver shows a tendency to be rather good at this, and it looks it for a brief period it looks like he has a bright career ahead of him as a very yeah. depressing looking undertaker. It probably doesn't help his cause that he really manages to upset Noah Claypole, who's who kind of sees himself as above Oliver in the company and is has his nose put out of joint because he's suddenly the, the golden boy and Noah's perhaps made to look not as good as he was before. Yeah, Noah is a charity case, which is different from a workhouse case. He's a mm. bit higher, slightly higher, but a bit higher socially. Mm-hmm. But Noah, even though he's older, is stuck making the coffins, whereas Oliver actually gets to go and attend the funerals and things like that as, mm-hmm. a, as, a, as a mute, as Mr. Yeah. Sourbird says. Uh, but eventually, Noah, because he hates Oliver and because people are terrible in this novel, just awful, awful mm. people, starts railing about Oliver's mother. And in one of the few times, there's the more, there's this incident, and there's one more that happens just after this. Oliver actually does something. Yeah. And in this case, he just completely goes nuts on, on <laughs> Noah and just beats the life out of him and just starts pounding on him. And he's, But he's like a nine-year-old, so it's not, he's not doing permanent damage. Mm. But the rest of the household, except for Mr. Sourberry, already hated Oliver because they all liked Noah. So Mrs. Sourberry and Charlotte, the housemaid, kind of beat on Oliver, and then when Mr. Sourberry comes home, they say, oh, he's going to murder us all. He's gone crazy, this workhouse child. Ah! <laughs> and they call the beetle, and the beetle, you know, does his little beetle thing and kind of beats Oliver a bit more, and then Mr. Sourberry locks him in the coal cellar. Um, and at his next opportunity, Oliver escapes. He runs away, mm-hmm. and he goes to London. And that's essentially the last active thing Oliver does the entire book. Yeah. After that, he becomes just victim to forces and sometimes benefactor of forces that are uh, way beyond his control and mm. he meets the artful dodger on the road to london yes one of the most memorable characters in the book who actually doesn't do as much as i thought he did no i thought that reading it through yeah you like hear about the artful dodger this really famous character he doesn't actually do that much but what he does mm. do is introduce oliver and Arthur dodger is maybe 13 he's a young boy as well mm-hmm Apparently, in the initial draft, he was a dwarf, too. He was, like, three foot really? six. Yeah, but then Dickens changed it to four foot six. Hmm. It was kind of very funny that at first, Artful Dodger was tiny. But anyhow, <laughs> um, and, the, and the thing that happens that everyone remembers is the Artful Dodger brings Oliver under the protection and, and essentially in a new form of apprenticeship under Fagin. Mm. <clears throat> a very problematic character. Certainly, reading it with modern eyes, yeah, not yeah, not for the least the way that he gets described fairly consistently. Yeah, yeah he's in the early portions of the novel in particular. He's often just referred to as the Jew, mm. and his description is that of essentially what was the stereotypical "quote unquote" Jewish look at the yeah. time. 
supposedly with like red hair and a very large kind of hooked nose and I'm just really it's hard to tell whether it's actively anti-Semitic or whether it's just passively anti-Semitic. Makes for pretty uncomfortable reading. It does. Mm. It does. Um, but at the same time, it's interesting because the first scene we have of Fagin, essentially he's cooking a sausage, mm-hmm. which is not kosher. And he doesn't do any... Like, he's a Jew only by culture or by name, not yeah. in any sense religiously. No. Uh, and Dickens kind of makes it clear through implication and, and direct comment that Fagin is kind of atheistic, if anything. Mm-hmm. But Fagin keeps all these young boys, although it's not as many as you'd think. It actually no. only seems like a few. Um, most productions kind of add a bunch in the background to make yeah. it seem more like a pack, where it seems like it's actually very few. And there's he's really a fence. Th- Sorry, there's really three main boys, isn't there? You've got Oliver, you've got the Dodger... Mm-hmm. And then you've got your favourite. You've got Charlie Bates, who yeah. is, in what I am certain, is a deliberate joke on Dickens' part. Because <laughs> he's think? the only character thus addressed. He's often referred to as Master Bates. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, Master is the appropriate mode of it address is. for it a is. young yeah. man. Yeah. But it's just so, he's the only one called thus. Yeah. It's never Master Twist or no, you know, Master true. Dawkins for the Dodger. It's only Master Bates. So, but Charlie, we'll call him Charlie, just so I don't keep giggling. <laughs> Charlie the Dodger and Oliver kind of play this game with Fagin, and the reader clearly knows that they're pickpockets. But Oliver is so good, he doesn't realize that they're stealing until they He's go out one day. He's pretty green, isn't he? he? They keep calling him green, actually. Mm. He's so naive and innocent and pure that they go out, and he gets he gets actually busted for a pickpocketing attempt that he did not do, mm. and gets hauled before a judge and faints and gets vindicated by the bookseller who was who his victim was, you know, buying a book from at the time of the pickpocketing. Hmm. I'm glad you um, mentioned that particular scene, Eric, because it just so happens that we have uh, someone called Sarah, who is actually the wife of Sam, who was on the last episode, and we've asked her very kindly to do a reading of that particular scene. So if you're okay, we're going to kind of drop that in here. Sounds good. Okay. What's the matter? demanded Oliver. Hush, replied the Dodger. Do you see that old cove at the bookstore? The old gentleman over the way, said Oliver. Yes, I see him. He'll do, said the Dodger. A prime plant, observed Master Charlie Bates. Oliver looked from one to the other with the greatest surprise, but he was not permitted to make any inquiries, for the two boys walked stealthily across the road and slunk behind the old gentleman towards whom his attention had been directed. Oliver walked a few paces after them, and not knowing whether to advance or retire, stood looking on in silent amazement. The old gentleman was a very respectable-looking personage, with a powdered head and gold spectacles. He was dressed in a bottle-green coat with a black velvet collar, wore white trousers and carried a smart bamboo cane under his arm. He had taken up a book from the store, and there he stood, reading away, as hard as if he were in his elbow chair, in his own study. It is very possible that he fancied himself there indeed, for it was plain, from his abstraction, that he saw not the bookstall, nor the street, nor the boys, nor, in short, anything but the book itself, which he was reading straight through, turning over the leaf when he got to the bottom of a page, beginning at the top line of the next one, 
and going regularly on with the greatest interest and eagerness. What was Oliver's horror and alarm as he stood a few paces off, looking on with his eyelids as wide open as they would possibly go, to see the Dodger plunge his hand into the old gentleman's pocket and draw from thence a handkerchief, to see him hand the same to Charlie Bates, and finally to behold them both running away around the corner at full speed. In an instant, the whole mystery of the handkerchiefs and the watches and the jewels and the Jew rushed upon the boy's mind. He stood for a moment with the blood so tingling through all his veins from terror that he felt as if he were in a burning fire. Then, confused and frightened, he took to his heels and, not knowing what he did, made off as fast as he could lay his feet to the ground. This was all done in a minute's space. In the very instant when Oliver began to run, the old gentleman, putting his hand to his pocket and missing his handkerchief, turned sharp around. Seeing the boy scudding away at such a rapid pace, he very naturally concluded him to be the depredator and shouting, Stop thief! with all of his might, made off after him, book in hand. But the old gentleman was not the only person who raised the hue and cry. The Dodger and Master Bates, unwilling to attract public attention by running down the open street, had merely retired into the very first doorway around the corner. They no sooner heard the cry and saw Oliver running than, guessing exactly how the matter stood, they issued forth with great promptitude and, shouting, Stop thief! too, joined in the pursuit like good citizens. Although Oliver had been brought up by philosophers, he was not theoretically acquainted with the beautiful axiom that self-preservation is the first law of nature. If he had been, perhaps he would have been prepared for this. Not being prepared, however, it alarmed him the more, so away he went like the wind, with the old gentleman and the two boys roaring and shouting behind him, Stop thief! Stop thief! There is a magic in the sound. The tradesman leaves his counter, and the carman his wagon. The butcher throws down his tray, the baker his basket, the milkman his pail, the errand boy his parcels, the schoolboy his marbles, the pavia his pickaxe, the child his battledore. They run, pell-mell, helter-skelter, slap-dash, tearing, yelling, screaming, knocking down the passengers as they turn the corners, rousing up the dogs and astonishing the fowls, and streets, squares and courts re-echo with the sound, Stop thief! Stop thief! The cry is taken up by a hundred voices, and the crowd accumulate at every turning. Away they fly, splashing through the mud and rattling along the pavements. Up go the windows, out one the people, onward bear the mob. A whole audience desert punch in the very thickest of the plot and, joining the rushing throng, swell the shout and lend fresh vigour to the cry, Stop thief! Stop thief! There is a passion for hunting something deeply implanted in the human breast. One wretched, breathless child 
panting with exhaustion, terror in his looks, agony in his eyes, large drops of perspiration streaming down his face, strains every nerve to make head upon his pursuers, and as they follow on his track and gain upon him, every instant they hail his decreasing strength with joy. Stop thief! Eh! Stop him for God's sake were it only in mercy! Stopped at last, a clever blow. He is down upon the pavement, and the crowd eagerly gather around him, each newcomer jostling and struggling with the others to catch a glimpse. Stand aside! Give him a little air! Nonsense, he don't deserve it! Where's the gentleman? Here he is, coming down the street. Make room there for the gentleman. Is this the boy, sir? Yes. Oliver Lay, covered with mud and dust, bleeding from the mouth, looking wildly round upon the heap of faces that surrounded him, when the old gentleman was officiously dragged and pushed into the circle by the foremost of the pursuers. Yes, said the gentleman, I'm afraid it is the boy. Afraid, murmured the crowd, that's a good one. Poor fellow, said the gentleman, he has hurt himself. I did that, sir, said a great lubberly fellow, stepping forward, and preciously I cut my knuckle again his mouth. I stopped him, sir. The fellow touched his hat with a grin, expecting something for his pains. But the old gentleman, eyeing him with an expression of dislike, looked anxiously around, as if he contemplated running away himself, which it is very possible he might have attempted to do and thus have afforded another chase, had not a police officer, who is generally the last person to arrive in such cases, at that moment made his way through the crowd and seized Oliver by the collar. Come, get up, the man said roughly. It wasn't me, indeed, sir. Indeed, indeed, it was two other boys, said Oliver, clasping his hands passionately and looking around. They are here somewhere. Oh, no, they ain't, said the officer. He meant this to be ironical, but it was true besides, for the Dodger and Charlie Bates had filed off down the first convenient court they'd come to. Come, get up. Don't hurt him said the old gentleman, compassionately. Oh no, I won't hurt him, replied the officer, tearing his jacket half off his back in proof thereof. Come, I know you, it won't do. Will you stand upon your legs, you, young devil? Oliver, who could hardly stand, made a shift to rise himself on his feet, and was at once lugged along the streets by the jacket collar at a rapid pace. The gentleman walked on with them by the officer's side, and as many of the crowd as could achieve the feat got a little ahead and stared back at Oliver from time to time. The boys shouted in triumph, and on they went. So thanks, Sarah. Thanks for uh, doing that reading. It was fantastic. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on the show as a guest proper at some point later. It's it's nice when you're talking about books like this, especially ones such as uh, anything that it can really, where the style is so important and the tone is so important to really be able to hear some of the words, I think, sometimes. Mm. Um, so after being rescued by the victim of the Dodger and Charlie's pickpocketing, I'm Mr. Brownlow, who is a very kindly old man mm. 
and have a housekeeper, Mrs. Bedwin, and Bed- Oliver's sick for days and days and days, and then he recovers. Um, and there's a whole thing with a painting that's just a bit bizarre, where Oliver's yeah. fascinated with the painting, and Brownlow realizes that Oliver looks exactly like the young woman in the painting, which is funny because Oliver apparently also looks exactly like his father. Um, so, so anyhow, but Oliver, it's quickly recovers over time and is so good and so affectionate. He just wants to make Mr. Brownlow and Mrs. Bedwin happy and seems like he's going to be settled there for a long period. Although, uh, Mr. Brownlow's best friend, a Mr. Grimwig, who was fond of saying that he'll eat his I'll own eat head. I'll eat my head. I'll eat my head. Yeah, that's it. That's his thing. He also pounds his cane on the floor as a kind of, you know... And if not, well then, bonk! That's just kind of his. That's just <laughs> kind of his statement. So they kind of have a little debate about whether or not Oliver's a good boy, and Brownlow believes he is in Grimwig. Just to be contrary, mind you, it's clear that Grimwig's actually a good man, but he's very contrarian. Says, you get oh, that no, he's a bad un. He's a bad un. So they send him out on an errand before he, Oliver's really had a chance to talk to Mister Brownlow at all about anything, mm-hmm. and he gets kidnapped back to the gang. Um, he like makes one wrong turn from this lovely neighborhood he's in, and suddenly he's in like darkest London. Yeah, um, and gets kidnapped by Nancy, who is one of the female hangers-on, and her and her paramour, who's a, a housebreaker named Bill Sykes. Yeah, he's a nasty piece of work. He's a really nasty piece of work, um, and he's one of the few adults we see in the gang with Fagin. Mm. It's mainly the kids and then the girls who are a bit older than the boys, but not that much. Mm. And then there's but then there's Bill Sykes, who's a who's a full grown man. Mm-hmm. Um, and for reasons of his own, which don't become clear until later, Fagin decides he really needs to use Oliver in a crime. He really needs to get him sort of indoctrinated into the criminal lifestyle. At first, it seemed like he was terrified of Oliver escaping only because he's worried Oliver would peach, as he says, or mm. essentially rat on them. Yeah. But then it becomes clear that there's something else going on. Um, and this is also when Nancy kind of makes her first step towards becoming a better person and she tries to defend Oliver from being beaten too severely by Sykes and Fagin. That comes but back it, on her in the end, and that, and that comes back on the end, yes. Um, but they do decide that Oliver is just the boy they need to help them with a housebreaking job they have at some place out in the middle of nowhere in the country, it seems. It's really far away. It takes um, Bill and Oliver several days to get there. And Toby Crackett is the third member of this little housebreaking team. Mm-hmm. And essentially they're going to shove Oliver through a hole and he's going to crawl in and then open the door for them from the inside. Mm-hmm. And he starts doing that and he's we're inside Oliver's head and he's he's inside the house and he knows that they have a pistol pointed at him from the outside and that they will shoot him if he screams. But he's like, I'm going to do the right thing even if they kill me because Oliver's just that good. He's a 10-year-old boy who's inside somebody else's house and is going to say, please, your house is being robbed, and then get shot. I mean, he's committed to this. But before he can do that, the butler of the house shoots him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and all this great kerfuffle breaks out, and Bill and Toby do retrieve Oliver and kind of were taking him along, but they Mm -hmm. realize they can't escape carrying this sort of lifeless boy. And so they leave him to die in a ditch. Um, and then Oliver kind of comes to, and he wanders around for a bit, and he stumbles across, of course, the same house that he's tried to break into. Yep. 
And after some shenanigans with a couple of Bow Street runners that went nowhere. Um, yeah, I kind of felt that. Yeah, that felt like padding. Um, the owner of the house, Mrs. Mainly, and her, her ward, if you will, Miss mm-hmm. Rose, um, and their local doctor friend, Dr. I forget, Lofcom, something like that. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. The doctor. They essentially decide to adopt Oliver. And from that point on, Oliver almost vanishes from the book. Yeah. And it becomes the story about how these essentially two worlds that have been introduced, the bad, which is Fagin and Bill Sykes, and to a certain extent Nancy, and the mm-hmm. Dodger, and the good, which is Mr. Brownlow, and and the Doctor, and, uh, and Rose, how those groups will interact mm-hmm. and who will triumph in the end. And after a lot of shenanigans and spying and watching and things, um, Nancy essentially decides to turn good as much as she can and goes to Rose and says, I know ab- this secret about Oliver's past. There's this man. He's named Monks. He's trying to destroy Oliver for reasons no one fully understands. Something about inheritance. Never quite makes sense. Hmm. It's all very convoluted. Um, but for for telling Rose and also in turn uh, Mr. Brownlow about this, um, Fagin decides to essentially turn Nancy over to Bill. Hmm. And, and strongly actually indicates to Bill that Nancy had said things she hadn't. Yeah. Nancy's actually very... At this point, Nancy's become so pure of heart in ways that she doesn't give up any of her criminal associates. She just wants to save Oliver. She's like, it's too late to save me. I'm fallen. La, da, 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 da. And the good people are like, no, we can save you. We can take you abroad. You know, whatever. And and actually, in one of the, probably the earliest cases of, you know, um, what came to be known, battered spouse syndrome in mm. Western literature, Nancy says, I can't. I love Bill, even though he's terrible and terrible to me. I can't leave him. And this brings about her death because Bill prodded on by Fagin, essentially, um, kills Nancy. And that's a really powerful scene in the book. It's a tremendously powerful and unbelievably violent scene. Mm. Um, just There's blood everywhere, and, and Bill Sykes has the dog, and the dog's walking, and the paws are leaving blood prints. I mean, it's really chilling and awful. And sort of like, what is this doing? What is going on here? Yeah, It's one of the many tonal shifts in the book. Mm. You also get the kind of... It's almost like you're experiencing his paranoia and his kind of descent into madness. This whole thing, he's kind of seeing her coming back to him in visions, and mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's pretty creepy stuff. Yeah, he sees her eyes mm-hmm. looking up at her, and her eyes even. And it's at this moment, finally, when we go from this very odd sort of um, book of two halves to suddenly everyone in London is outraged. Mm-hmm. This murder is just so beyond the pale, apparently. Jacob even says it's like the worst thing that happened in the city that night. I'm like, really? It is? Okay. It's a big place, London, but if mm-hmm. you say that was the worst thing, I'll go with you. <laughs> but just everyone is outraged. And so through a series of mob incidents and other things, all of the, essentially the main bad guys are brought down. Like mm-hmm. they, The city decides to turn on Fagin, who had been operating for, I don't know, God knows how long. And Fagin gets arrested and kind of beaten by a mob as he's taken into jail. Yeah. Um, Bill Sykes is trying to make a run for it, but he can't really find anywhere, and he ends up 
going to a house, one of the safe houses they had used, and he there finds um, Master Bates <laughs> uh, and a few other minor characters uh, that we've been introduced to previously, and one old character, one guy we hadn't met before, and I don't know why he's there, but he is. Mm-hmm. And and Charlie essentially calls up the window to people and says, he's here, he's here, the murderer's here. He's Charlie is so shaken by what happened to Nancy. Mm-hmm. Um that he just can't quite. Live don't they end himself. up? They end up following the dog as well, don't they? Because the... there's a bit of dog following. Yeah, um, that's ha- heightened a lot in the in the movie. Yes, um, I think it's less so. And but Sykes is actually trying to make his escape across rooftops, and there's a mob watching him, and there are mm-hmm. people like get a ladder, and it's very sort of chaotic, and he's clearly done for. There's no way he's getting out, mm-hmm. and he's running across the rooftops with this rope, and he's going to like kind of tie the rope around himself and jump in the rooftop or something. It's kind of vague what his thought process is. Mm-hmm. Or I guess lower himself down and then run along the yeah. dry creek below. But he's starting to put the ro- rope around himself and he's going to put it around his chest. But he, as he gets it around his neck, before he can move it, he sees Nancy's eyes again staring at him. Mm. And he gets terrified and he falls and the noose tightens and he essentially strangles himself in front of this entire onlooker. Um... And the dog, at this point, and this is just awful, the mm. dog jumps out a window, essentially trying to land on Bill. Yeah. To save him, I guess, or something. Mm-hmm. And instead misses and kind of lands in the mud below and bashes its brains out against a, a rock or a building. Um, and so both Bill and the dog, who are kind of intimately linked somehow, die. Mm. Um, and... Uh, at that point, we have essentially Fagin in jail, and there's a really odd and unsettling scene where Mr. Brownlow takes Oliver to visit Fagin in his jail cell. On yeah, that was last, a bit weird. On one of his last nights alive, and Fagin is just gone insane, essentially, and mm-hmm. is terrified and, and haunted by the specter of his own death. Um, and it makes it clear that when the rabbis are sent to him to pray with him, he just sort of brushes them away. He doesn't want to deal with that. He just mm-hmm. wants to He's think he's like Oliver. We were good friends. You'll let me. You'll find a way for me to escape, right? And Oliver and Brownlow are like, "You're insane." Hmm. And so we don't see it happen, but the chapter that chapter ends with a, a picture of the gallows, essentially, and we know that the next day Fagin's going to be hanged for exactly what we do not know. Hmm. Um, and then all of the plot threads are really just amazingly contrivingly um, tied together, <laughs> where we find out. The Oliver's mother, and let me see if I get this all right because it's so bizarre. Oliver's mother was Oliver is illegitimate, first of all. Yeah. Which is which is actually it's interesting that Dickens did not kind of make him. He is still a bastard, mm-hmm. although that's a word that uh, Mr. Brownlow says it's stupid to use because he, mm. the boy did nothing wrong. No. Um, and he is the son of Mr. Brownlow's best friend. And a daughter, the elder daughter of two of this other family. Yeah. The younger daughter of those two was Rose. Yeah. And she had been adopted by Mrs. Maley. So Rose is actually Oliver's aunt. Mm-hmm. Mr. Brownlow is no direct relation to him, but he is the son of his best friend, and so he adopts him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rose marries Mr. Mrs. Maley's son, Henry, who becomes a clergyman instead of a politician. Because at one point they were kind of angling it so that the doctor might end up marrying her, but that doesn't kind of pay off. It doesn't. It doesn't really pay off now. And essentially, 
all the good characters move to a village together and live happily mm-hmm. ever after. Yeah, I think Amy had a real problem with the <laughs> just incredible amount of uh, coincidence in this particular novel. Yeah, no, and and monks, this evil character who is really mm. ill thought out in many ways. Yeah, who's the one who's working with Fagin to corrupt the boy? Turns out to be Oliver's half brother, mm. Oliver's father's son by a first marriage. Um, and apparently the father left a will wherein, if if his if this illegitimate child from his mistress were a son he would get half of his estate. However, mm-hmm. if he were convicted while a youth of any sort of crime or anything, he would lose his rights. Mm-hmm. And so apparently that's why Monks was so strongly pressing Fagin and why Fagin was so strongly pressing Oliver to kind of get implicated in a crime. Yeah. Which Oliver never does. So Oliver is able to inherit. And even though apparently the rights of the will allow Oliver to take full inheritance. He does, in fact, share it with monks. Monks goes off to America, spends his half of the inheritance, and dies in prison. Mm. Um, Fagin dies in the gallows. Bill's dead. Nancy's dead. Uh, let's see. Everyone dies, except for Noah, who had actually, in a bit of coincidence, that was too much to be believed. He after, turns up at the Three Cripples, doesn't he? The turns pub. up at the Three Cripples, which is the pub that all the criminals go to, yeah. Mm. And he shows up there with Charlotte after they've stolen some money from Mr. Sourberry. Mm-hmm. And he is actually the person who Fagin sends to spy on Nancy. Yes. And he is kind of really shaken by um, by that event to mm-hmm. a certain extent. That even though he's still a criminal, he's a much lesser kind of criminal. Yeah. Apparently they go out on Sundays and pretend to faint in, in, outside of pubs. And when the landlord of the pub brings out some brandy to revive the person who fainted, they then inform on the landowner for violating the Sunday law to prevent mm. the you know, selling of drinks on Sunday, which is and that's how they make their living. <laughs> 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 which is just kind of ridiculous. Because he doesn't and, turn up again in the David Lean film, if I remember rightly. They don't no, send the Dodger to, to spy. They send on. the Dodger. They send yeah. the Dodger. Yeah. Um Charlie Bates kind of goes and makes a an honest living of himself. Uh, not a great living, but an honest one and he's a happy person so mm-hmm. he seems like the kind of person he'd be happy doing almost anything and he's apparently a grazier mm. so he um, kind of single-handedly turned his life around yeah he does um, which you see happen when he's willing to give up Bill even if it means his own death at the end there um, the only person sorry that was me of... being a bit smutty there <laughs> <laughs> oh I see I see <laughs> Oh, Master you, you, yeah. you were too pure of mind to uh, think well, about Well, I'm just it. trying to keep all the characters straight. <laughs> and the only character who kind of escapes the novel before the end, aside from Nancy, if you will, is mm. the Dodger. Yeah. Is the actual Dodger, who mm-hmm. gets arrested before all the stuff with Nancy actually happens. Yeah. And he has a really odd and funny scene in a courtroom where he's essentially refusing to be overawed by the majesty of the law or something. Yeah. And he sentenced to seven years transportation to probably Australia. Yeah. Uh, maybe somewhere else, but he's to be transported. And so he's literally shipped off. Yeah. And there is a line <coughs> from Dickens at, at the end when he says that all the rest of Fagin's gang died. So we mm-hmm. have to assume that the Dodger died after he got transported. Yeah. But it's really hard to imagine that because he was such a vivid character but yeah. he's actually in the book a lot less than the memory would indicate hmm. so that's Oliver Twist yes your your evaluation of the book 
Ah, uh, well, I think people always talk about you know Dickens having been like a professional hack writer, just a very good one in some mm. sense that he was he was writing the deadlines and writing for serialization and, and writing by the word and all this sort of stuff. Um, and that's not inaccurate. It often doesn't show, however. Hmm. It really shows here. Yeah. Um, there is a, a strong opinion among, you know, Dickens scholars and the like that this was a book that was made up as he went along. Well, it was that released in serial form, wasn't it, for a magazine? Yeah, over the course of a year and a half, two years, mm. and quite a, yeah. quite a lengthy period of time. Hmm. And at the beginning, it seems like it's going to be one book, which is essentially going to be about how a child born into poverty essentially has no means of escape and mm. will die either in the workhouse or on the gallows or on the streets. Then he decides to do this whole thing about criminals and the underworld and Fagin. And he kind of gets really interested in that. Mm-hmm. But he drops that after a while, too, because Oliver moves to the Maylees. And so you get this really melodramatic thing about stains on your honor and and family legacy and honor mm-hmm. uh, generally and and people being sick all the time a lot of crying yeah and then it's kind of goes back to this the fourth kind of element is this crazy suppressed will this locket that Oliver's mother had been wearing apparently it does go um, a bit bonkers there it goes completely bonkers and um, yeah I, 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 I'm, I'm inclined to believe the people and, and agree with them who think that he made this up as he went along and his mind shifted about what he was trying to do. Um, like, the first time we meet Nancy, there's no indication whatsoever that she has any sort of goodness and 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 virtue in her. It's not until after Oliver gets recaptured, which she was the one who recaptured him. Yeah, that's true. It's not until after that happens that she's, like, starts to become really virtuous. And by the end, she is so unbelievably martyr-worthy, if you will. She's just so good. Mm. And so... <clears throat> but she's without hope, which is a problem. But she's just, uh, yeah. And so it's highly problematic as, like, a narrative. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why many adaptations, um, including the lean, yeah. um, focus on the Fagin part. Because it is the part by far the part that has the most life yes the most interesting characters the most vitality and has sort of the most maybe to say uh whatever the age may be which Mm. is that you know poverty creates crime and crime begets poverty and um it's very difficult to kind of escape that life and then and that and nancy's sacrifice becomes all the more poignant um, when you focus on it, as opposed to kind of counterpointing her with Rose, and there's uh, there's quite a sort of social commentary going on, but it kind of gets lost a bit in the whole kind of slightly fantastical element of you know, throwing in all these crazy sort of uh, inheritance things and that kind of stuff. I think it detracts from it somewhat. Yeah, no, I think that's right, and I think in a weird way, I think. How to phrase this? It's like the it's there's a little scene early in the beginning when the Beatles' buttons are described, and they're actually images of the Good Samaritan mm-hmm. tending uh, the person on the road. Yeah, and I think that's sort of there's and 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 then the last 
scene, the last sentence of the book essentially is Oliver's mother's, the idea that Oliver's mother's ghost visited, visits her tomb in a church because she was fallen as well and sort mm-hmm. of needs spiritual guidance. There is this sort of subtle and sometimes not so subtle Christian uh, message going throughout. Yeah. And the thing, and Oliver's kind of deliverance, if you will, reminded me nothing so much as like this sort of very Calvinist idea that you can be saved via grace, but you can't do it yourself. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved, but your actions will not make it happen. Mm-hmm. And so Oliver is this very good little boy. Too good. Far too good. He has no interest or character or depth whatsoever. And he never grows beyond like 11 or 12. So there's really no kind of development even. He has a few moments of spirit early in the novel and then they just vanish. Yeah. He's a bit of a blank page really in some respects. Yeah. Not that much to him. No. No, there's not at all. But he does, he does get saved. And so Mm. through this very convoluted machinery. Yeah. And so it's sort of like almost fairy tale, but also very sort of allegorical in that, mm. you know, the whole God worked in mysterious way thing. It seems that Oliver is saved because he was going to be saved. He's, yeah. he's Oliver and he's special. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to someone like Nancy who has to work and kind of overcome her own upbringing and things like that. Or as yeah. opposed to someone like the Dodger who kind of just takes to a life of crime and has fun with it. Or someone like Charlie. Yeah. Who is a criminal but not really a bad person and mm-hmm. so they would have proved himself. Whereas Oliver is just sort of he's good, 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 good. Um and so I, I do think it's interesting if problematic that he's essentially Oliver is saved completely by other people's actions. Mm-hmm. Um I think the only thing I'd ever read before this was a short story called The Signalman. Have you read that? I haven't, but I it's on my list. Mm. I really enjoyed that. It kind of suits me because my attention span is terrible, as Amy would probably tell you. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed it. It's a great ghost story, really creepy, sort of chilling tale. So I definitely recommend it if you're uh, looking for something to pick up. It's not particularly long, but it's it works really well. Great yeah, I downloaded it. I downloaded it to my Kindle actually. Mm. Um, it's oddly enough, one of the reviewers said it was terrible. Oh, really? But they're a Kindle reviewer, and I don't know what they're expecting. Ah, uh, well, hmm. and they, yeah, okay. But they seem to be just sort of like, have never heard of Dickens. I don't know. But anyhow. Mm. <coughs> I enjoy so, it. So, yeah. Um, let's see, my other notes. Um, okay, so Fagin. Mm. The, aside from the whole Jewish question, yeah. which is troubling, but I, mm. I, you can't really say much more about it. I think we're looking at it from 21st century perspective as well, which is, you know, I don't know whether that's... You can't, I'm not saying it's not disturbing to read, but maybe we're looking at it with slightly different eyes than perhaps somebody would do if they were reading it for the first time when it was published. I think there's some of that, but it is also uh, true that um, some well-placed people, when Oliver Twist started being published, read it and said, you're not doing the Jews any favours by writing them this. And Dickens was like, well, it's... You know, the thing is, there had been well-known cases in Dickens' time of, like, Jewish fences. Mm. Like, you know, Fagin was at least theoretically based on someone named Ike Solomon, I think was his mm-hmm. name. Um, but what Dickens did do is, in all the subsequent chapters that hadn't yet been printed, you'll notice that the use of the Jew yeah. stops. Mm, and it's because yeah. Dickens removed them all. Mm. 
he did kind of, and that it goes up to apparently Fagin's last night. Yeah, was supposed to be the Jews last night, and, and all the way through the rest of the novel, he removed all those references. Mm-hmm. Um, but even aside from that, Fagin is like Dickens wanted to show criminals as they were and show them being really unattractive, mm. and he succeeds with Bill. Yeah, but he kind of fails with Fagin because he's Fagin's kind of charming. Yes. And funny and interesting. Um, and it's almost like there is a charge that the romantic poets held about Milton with regard to his Satan. That he was, without knowing it, he was one of Satan's camp because Satan is so much more interesting a character than anyone else is in Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's sort of that idea that Dickens wanted to create really terrifying figures and everything around Fagin is kind of terrifying like yeah the rooms are black and dirty and he looks really terrifying but he's so charming at times and so funny (coughs) that almost in spite of yourself you're like hey I like that Fagin yeah I know what you mean which is why I think it's so easy for you know modern day or like interpretations of of all to kind of focus on Fagin and kind of have him be a bit more sympathetic and I yeah he's not meant to be Hmm. but I think Dickens kind of fails a bit or else he's just being very good and being cleverer than we are <laughs> by showing that sometimes evil is very pleasing yeah you know that all the devil comes in the form of a beautiful woman mm-hmm. and he is drawn very much like the devil a lot of times he's hunched over a fire he has like a little pitchfork that he's roasting things mm-hmm. on he's all in red it's very sort of satanic at times um uh, let's see what oh uh so there's also a theory that Nancy's the real heroine of the book. And that mm-hmm. Dickens was trying to write a book about good triumphing throughout everything, regardless of it all. Okay. And it's really hard to imagine that being Oliver, because Oliver doesn't do anything. No, he's, <laughs> he's yeah, like I said before, he's, he's pretty kind of, just kind of gets swept along, doesn't he? Yeah, and he vanishes for whole huge chunks of the book. Mm, yeah. Whereas Nancy is the character we see actively do something that puts yeah. herself in danger for yeah. the benefit of somebody else. Mm. Um, she's the only one who actually sacrifices anything by caring for Oliver. Yeah. The wealthy people who all kind of have to be related to him anyway, but none of them are sacrificing anything by taking care of Oliver and being kind to him. No. Um, she's the only one who puts anything at risk, and she suffers the ultimate punishment for it. She is, she's killed. Yeah. Um, but she actually, in that moment saves Oliver or has knows she has already saved Oliver and so she can die not happy but she dies and you know saying to Bill it's never too late to be redeemed and she's talking to him but she's also talking to herself there and she's saying yeah I know I've redeemed myself through this action and so she becomes a much more interesting character she mm. and Bill become much more interesting characters than Oliver ever manages to be yeah so yeah it is it's not the book I thought it was mm. <laughs> It is not even closely the book I thought it was. It's much darker at times. Yeah. The humor is much more sort of sporadic. I only laughed once, which is rare for Dickens for me. Hmm. And it was when um, the butler at the Maley's house was astonished that burglars would come in the middle of the night. Midnight in the dark of night! And Dickens was like, <laughs> as opposed to coming at noon and sending a card <laughs> a few days in advance when that's going showing up. It's just about... <laughs> Really funny, but it's one of the few times he kind of allows himself that authorial comment on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I know a lot of times this book is kind of 
rewritten for or given to kids, like smart kids. Mm. I think that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Not only because there's better Dickens out there. Um, he, he wrote, this was his second novel. He was only like 26 when he wrote this. That's right, yeah. And he clearly hadn't figured out what he was doing yet, I don't think, all the time. Um, but it's also, like, that that murder of Nancy by Sykes is, mm. that is strong stuff, even by today's standards. Yeah, it's really compelling reading. Yeah. But disturbing um, also. But, yeah, and the whole second half of the novel, with the main leaves and all that sort of stuff, is just of no, would be of no interest to children. Mm, no. There's just nothing there. It's very soap opera-y, melodrama-y, sort of, like, low-rent Jane Austen also. And I love Jane Austen, but it's kind of like bad Jane Austen. It's mm. just not... It doesn't... Because none of the characters develop. They're all very one-dimensional. Um, so, yeah. If you ever think, oh, I have a smart 10-year-old nephew, I'm going to give him on... No, don't give him on. <laughs> Is there one that you've read that you would recommend for kids to read? <sighs> you know, I was fairly young the first time I read Tale of Two Cities actually which is short mm-hmm. which is rare for Dickens it has some violence but the characters are much more interesting and the violence is historical yeah uh, by and large um, and it's just so much more interesting the characters are much more interesting the language is better um, and the plot moves along and plus it's a good opportunity to start teaching kids about like the French Revolution and stuff like that you yeah. know it's a great excuse to start throwing history their way Mm-hmm. Um, and the villains are not just one hundred percent evil. Uh, they're interesting and they're cunning. Yeah. Um, which reminds me that Fagin, I think, is a weird sort of update of Iago. Um, okay. And we have Bill and Nancy as Othello and Desdemona because he whispers in Bill's ear mm, that Nancy yeah. has been unfaithful and betrayed him. Bill yeah. kills Nancy, even though it's not exactly true. What. He, Fagin has said um, there's also the, a very important handkerchief that betrays the fact that she has been contacting with other people Yeah, which uh, the handkerchief is the entire kind of MacGuffin of Othello and here Nancy dies and as she's dying she pulls out the handkerchief that Rose had given her to remember her by mm-hmm. and so it's, it's a weird sort of update of that uh, little triangle there mm. but, but yeah it's not it's not a kid's book it was certainly a book written about a child that was meant for adults, I think. Hmm, yeah. But what did you think of the David Lean movie? Because we, we did two movies. We did. We, we, had a, <laughs> we had a little a vote on the blog page and on Facebook um, asking listeners to vote for the movie adaptation they'd like us to, to watch to kind of compare it with the, the novel. Um, so we had uh, the Disney cartoon version, which I don't think got any votes at all. Um, <laughs> was that Oliver the Dog? Yeah. Or Oliver the Dog? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oliver and Company, I think it was called. Yeah, that's it. Oliver yeah. So no votes for that one. Um, we had one or two for Oliver the Musical. Thankfully, that didn't win. Uh, yeah, I don't actually like <laughs> I love Broadway, and I don't like that show very much. Mm-hmm, okay. Um, and then there were kind of two that were neck and neck. We had the David Lean version, um, and there was, well, it didn't help that I perhaps put the wrong title for the movie in the first place on the uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the voting form. Uh, somebody, someone far more learned than me, suggested we might perhaps go for a movie that was uh, much more of a 
a different take on the story and a totally different kind of spin on the whole thing. That would be Twist, me. if you like. Yeah, yeah. That would be me. Yeah, I strongly push that. Yeah, Even I, if we did the lean version, we also do Twist, which is a 2003 Canadian hmm. um, version. Um, but to the lean first, if you will, hmm, from yeah. 48, um, a couple years after he did Great Expectations in yeah. 46, which was a huge success. Which I prefer of the two, I have to say. You know, having not seen Great Expectations and having never actually seen um, this this production by David Lean, hmm. it was strikingly beautiful. Like, he's clearly, you know, you think it's going to be just a fairly, you know, film the scenes from the book kind of yeah, adaptation. Yeah, kind of bog-standard adaptation, but I think it goes a little bit beyond that. I think it goes quite a bit beyond that. And hmm. some of the scenes were... Um, like there's a scene where Nancy is spying on monks and Fagin mm. and the landlord of the tavern kind of comes in just the way it's kind of, I can't even describe yeah. the framing because it's very odd. Mm. It's like Nancy's an extreme foreground yeah. and the landlord is, and it's got to see these two things happening at once and mm-hmm. she's hiding and he's, he knows she's there, but doesn't want to kind of interrupt. It's very, it was very well shot. I thought a lot of times he greatly condenses and switches up the novel. Yes. Yeah, he eliminates the melees and all of that stuff completely altogether. Mm. Which, if you're if you're trying to do a screenplay, is probably the sensible thing to do. It is, but if the, you're limited to a certain amount of time. Yeah, the other the problem with that though is that he also gr- completely eliminates monks' motivation. Mm, that's true. There's a. It turns out in the movie version that Oliver is Mister Brownlow's grandson. Mm. Is that make monks his grandson or his son yeah it's it's not even remotely clear he's just this villainous figure trying to ruin oliver and there's a Mm. line saying mr brownlow saying you know for your inheritance you know there is no inheritance and it's like what in what's going on (laughs) who who and it's never explained (laughs) it's never ever explained um why exactly that why this guy was trying to corrupt oliver Mm. um he eliminates Noah's later appearance and has and has the Dodger being the one who follows mm-hmm. Nancy. And also has the Dodger be the one who um, essentially resists Bill the most. Yeah. Um, so there's an implication of that he's kind of usurped. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie's role is the person who might come out of this in the end okay, although they all get to carry it off by the mob, so it's hard to tell at the end. I think it probably speaks volumes that when we watched it, Amy felt more compassion for the dog than she did for Nancy in the the movie version. <laughs> I, I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> yeah, better. I thought I thought Nancy was well acted. I just I thought, thought she was way too old. Mm. She mm. was clearly not a teenage, even even a hard living teenage woman. Mm. She was clearly significantly older than I imagined her in the book, and I think she's meant yeah. to be. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's the director's wife. Ah, oh, coincidence. Playing playing Nancy. I know that never happens. The Tim Burton effect. It's on the bottom, Carter. Every single movie. Um, but it's a... The guy playing Sykes was really good. I forget his name now, but he's been in a few other things as well. Yeah, I noticed him. And mm. Mrs. Sourberry, who I was really sad when she turned up, and I knew how small her role was, because mm. she also played Scrooge's Maid in the 1951 version of A Christmas Carol that started Alistair Sim that I watch every year, and I oh. love and adore. And she's just fantastic. And she turned up, I'm like, oh, she's great. Oh, her part's small. Oh. Mm. Um, Shame. It is and you've got Alec Guinness as well. As Alec Guinness is 
as a really, really, really offensive Fagin, I found. <laughs> um, and it's from 48. I mean, like, this is yeah. after... It's the same year of the founding of Israel. Mm. And he's doing this really sort of... He puts on this very strange sort of, quote-unquote, Jewish accent, which there's yeah. no indication Fagin has in the book. This is only a few years after the war as well. It's like... Yeah, I don't it's know. really it's it seems like he would have gotten beyond it, but I guess he wanted to. I don't know, but but he does make Fagin charming. He does mm. capture the element of it, and and I can see people looking at their performance and thinking there's something very good there. But it, it just, yeah, it just really struck me as ooh inappropriate, mm. inappropriate. Um, but the performance is good. Yeah, I grant the performances are all good. I thought Oliver is completely passive as he's meant to be. Yeah. The trick with condensing the book, though, is that it means that Oliver actually does become a criminal. Yeah, which... Yeah. You're yeah. a completely different story, really, aren't you? Yeah, he he actually... The housebreaking incident that should have led to him being shot never mm, happens. No. Or, but the housebreaking happens, and Oliver comes back safe and sound. Mm. And he's still there with Fagin at the end when the mob comes to get him. And the other change is that Bill... While haunted by Nancy, by the murder of Nancy, hmm. doesn't die because he saw her eyes. He actually gets, he's he gets actually shot. in that position and he's and he's hmm. shot, hmm. and then he falls yeah. because he's been shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's actually at the time trying to kidnap Oliver and take him away and use the boy like a hostage, and that's completely just added. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So and at the end, Oliver is kind of adopted by Mister Brownlow, who was apparently his grandfather. How we don't know. Yeah. And gets taken off to live happily ever after. And that's so. it, yeah. The end. It's a, it's, yeah. It's an interesting adaptation. Mm. It does what I think a lot of adaptations do, which is, and it probably, I don't know ones before this, but I think a lot, I know a lot of adaptations focus very heavily on the thieves circle to the exclusion of everything else. Yeah. Well, it like does, you said, it's the most, you know, interesting part of the book. And the most vivid. Mm. Uh, but it does make the sort of contrivances feel even more contrived, if that makes any sense. Like, when you don't have this sort of, like... Because the second half of the novel, actually, to our extent, is this sort of team of people all around Oliver mm. who come together because of Oliver. Brownlow and Maylie, and, you know, all these kind of... And the Doctor and Grimwig, he has, like, all these allies. It's like the Avengers form to help Oliver twist. Mm-hmm. Here, it's just like an old guy and his maid. Yeah. It's a lot less impressive feeling. Mm. And Nancy is not nearly as interesting in the movie in a way because she doesn't have nearly as much to say or do. No. Um, so she kind of... Yeah. Her her change doesn't seem nearly as dramatic. It seems much more sort of... You see more of a progression in her character, don't you, in the book? Yeah, you really do. You really do. Mm. So, But it's, it's a worthy adaptation, I would say, but I... I don't know how much longer that Patrol Fagan by Alec Guinness can really mm. get around. Apparently, even when it was released, um, quite a few minutes of that portion of the film were cut so it could be released in the States. Really? And it was banned in the state of Israel. Mm. I mean, it's just, even at the time, people were like, oh, whoa, that's not cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, only a few years before they, the Jewish people had been through absolute hell and torment and yeah it's only a few years after the holocaust yeah. and you're throwing up this really horribly horribly stereotyped sort of performance mm, from mm. Guinness which is not 
entirely even justified by the book. No. There is a minor Jewish character who has the quote-unquote Jewish accent that you'll see even into the 20s. It occurs in The Great Gatsby as well. There's a Jewish character who has that sort of nasally sort of thing where all the consonants sound wrong. Mm. That was used in books to denote Jewish. Right. Uh, but Fagin doesn't speak that way. Mm. He speaks just as proper English as anyone else in the Thieves' Den. So, yeah. It, yeah. It was, it, was, it was a good watch. Mm. Um, but I... I don't think it's quite the masterpiece of. It's not British one you're going to be digging out of the DVD collection anytime soon. Then. I don't think so. No, uh, mm. but it is available on YouTube. If you hunt hard enough, you'll find mm. it um, on YouTube to watch for free, which mm-hmm. is what I did. Um, and speaking of having to watch things on YouTube, yeah, <laughs> I made you watch Twist, and you and only found it on YouTube for you. You forced me to watch it. Yeah, it it does something. Well, it does something very different. It takes the story, or it takes the Fagin element of the story, hmm. transposes it to modern-day Toronto, where it's always very cold, it seems, mm-hmm. um, and makes the main character actually the Artful Dodger, or Dodge, as he's called in this. Yeah, I found that quite an interesting change around. I thought that was quite yeah. a neat, neat twist, if you pardon the pun. Yes, and gives him a bit of a backstory that he doesn't have at all in the book, hmm. and is unbelievably bleak and depressing. I'd seen mm. it years before, and and watching it again last night, I'm like, oh my god, this is so dark. <laughs> it's Nick Stahl, isn't it? Because he was in, was it in Terminator 3? I think he plays He's been, he's been in quite John a few Connor. things. Yeah, mm. Nick Stahl. He's a, he's a proper working actor. He'll pop mm. up here, and, and, um, and the actor plays Oliver, whose name I've forgotten. He's also been in quite a few other things. And I also recognize the actor who played Fagin. Right. Um, he's a... And actually, the film was nominated for several genies, which I think are like the Canadian Oscars. Okay. Um, even though its Rotten Tomato rating is unbelievably low. <laughs> the critics hated this movie, it seems. Really? Oh, dear. Yeah. Well, I the first thing like I it. noticed when I saw him... Sorry. first thing I noticed when I no. saw him come on the screen, he's wearing a Tom Baker Doctor Who scarf. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just looking for hidden subtext there. But you know. might be. You might <laughs> be. Yeah. Um... But but I think it does an interesting thing. It 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 properly modernizes the sort of thieves den by turning it into actually a, a male prostitution ring mm-hmm. with Fagin essentially the pimp and and Bill Sykes Bill as a completely unseen. Yeah, that was quite a cool kind of way of doing it. Yeah, he kind of pervades the whole film, doesn't he? Yeah, the sphere of Bill and what Bill will do. Who's the mm. drug dealer who provides the boys with drugs? Yeah. Um, there's all these phone calls and he gets mm-hmm. mentioned in passing and you get this whole kind of growing sense that you know this guy's bad news and you don't want to mess with him yeah and 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 but the plot roughly parallels um you know Nancy tries to help Oliver yeah um and gets found out for it and Fagin tells Bill about it and Bill kills her um because Nancy works in the Three Cripples Diner. Works in the Three Cripples Diner. Yes, mm-hmm. she does. Um, Fagin, upon realizing what he's done, actually kills himself. Mm, yeah. Um, and throughout the entire movie, Oliver is essentially... He, who's developing feelings. Oliver, it seems, is actually gay, whereas, whereas Dodge probably isn't mm-hmm. is doing this because it's a way of making money. And, and the other characters, there's actually Charlie, is one of the other boys. and. Mm-hmm. There's even a reference to a Noah, I think, at one point. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
And so the names are kind of all there, but the story is different. But it's sort of, but there's no happy ending. No, it's like you say, it's pretty bleak. There's one scene where um, Dodge's got some, I think it's heroin, and he's shooting up, and Oliver comes into the room and says, um, "Do you work to do this?" And he says, "No, I do this so I can work." Yeah, which is just oh god, yeah, mm. that's it's unremittingly dark. Yeah, um, and it is to the point where there's this whole false false lead about this guy who notices an locket that Oliver's wearing. And you think it's going to be the sort of thing it is in the book, where by all these coincidences it turns out he's actually somebody's grandson or something. Mm-hmm. But no. Well, you got the, the guy that called the senator who turns up, he, don't yeah, you? Yeah, it turns out the senator, and the senator notices the locket and seems really interested in Oliver mm-hmm. and gives and gives actually Charlie his card to give to Oliver, which mm-hmm. causes all sorts of problems. But Oliver does call him and talk to him, and then actually shows up at the senator's house. Yeah. And essentially told to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, I, what are you doing here? I never wanted this. I, I don't know what you thought I meant by giving you my card, but it wasn't that I was going to take care of you or something like that. Mm. And there's, there's a line, isn't there, where he says, um, don't get mad at your secretary. She thought I was your grandson. Yeah, yeah. Which where, I thought was quite a cool little... Where the movie's deliberately playing callback. with your expectations that this mm. is going to end happily. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't. It's, it's essentially what would happen to these kind of people in modern times mm. with no sort of crazy plot contrivances to save them. Mm. And so essentially by the end, um, you know, Fagin's dead, Nancy's dead, Bill's dead because Dodge takes Fagin's gun and goes and shoots mm. Bill. Yeah. Um, and the last shot we have of him is him essentially covered in blood sitting on the front porch of Bill's house and there's clearly no indication. And this is after having had some really terrible things happen to him involving his long-lost brother. Yeah, oh god, that's, yeah. That scene was really hard to watch, actually. Mm. There's no there's no actual nudity or, or sexual activity seen in film, but it's strongly implied in several moments. There was one uh, scene which I thought was quite affecting, which was he sees his brother and they obviously don't get on, there's, there's problems, there's some kind of history and uh, he ends up having to pay his brother... Uh, for his time when they're talking in the diner mm-hmm. and uh, so he walks out of the diner with $300 in his pocket and I think if you look at it when he first meets Oliver he kind of asks him back to the place where they stay and says oh I've got somewhere where you'll be safe and you, know, you can hang out and he kind of brings him into that circle of guys that are working for uh, Fagin and he starts to do the same thing with this guy he meets on the street and it ends up with him and some friends who are kind of hiding around the corner just beating him pretty badly and taking his money off him. Yeah, yeah, essentially he gets gay-bashed and robbed. Yeah, I mean, um, he he comes across as a much more sympathetic character in in this adaptation, but he's still yeah. complicit because he's still, you know, he's actively getting these young guys who are just living on the street. I don't know, it's kind of a, a double-edged thing. Obviously, he's trying to help them, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, he's kind of bringing them into this whole lifestyle, which is not really going to help them. No, it's not. And and Nancy even says to Oliver when she's trying to help him, if you, you know, Oliver's saying, but Dodge has been so good to me, he's been so nice to me, I can't just betray him by, you know, leaving and going with the senator, whatever it is the senator is offering. Mm-hmm. And Nancy says, "If don't you think that if Dodge knew a way out, he would take it? Um, but that is kind of... 
in the way the the lie of that is proven because Dodge does get offered a way out, but it's mm. just to a world that's even worse in his mind. Yeah, which is one where he's back with his family apparently, and it mm-hmm. seems like he'd been molested, and so it's really just horribly bleak. So Dodge is probably going to go to jail or kill himself because mm-hmm. he's you know not even trying to pretend that he didn't kill Bill. Uh, not to quote Tarantino. It's a very and good film, but it's not a laugh a minute. Not a laugh a minute. And the last scene, the last shot is essentially an inverse of the first shot, which yeah. was a slow sort of series of shots into Dodge sitting on a bed in a random hotel room with his client for the evening at the end in the early morning. And it leads, and Oliver is in that position now. Mm-hmm. He's even wearing the same T-shirt. Yeah. That Dodge One thing that struck me as a bit odd on that scene, they're sitting in this room, there's this massive, massive window kind of out onto the road beyond which the camera kind of pulls back mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem to be an awful lot of curtains kind of you know <laughs> <laughs> anyone just happened to walk past you know could get an eyeful of well you know, yeah whatever. yeah it seems like they would have drawn the curtains there but that would have ruined the camera angle but <laughs> the general setup is actually very accurate in terms of a lot of the sort of roadside motels i don't think okay. they have them quite as much in the uk mm-hmm. but here in the states and in canada also you'll have these sort of you know where the entrances to the rooms are on the outside. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the Bates Motel in Psycho. Okay. And a lot of those will have like sort of big picture windows. And you mm. realize, like, what is this for? Like, who? <laughs> and you, when you walk by them, if the windows are open, you can see right in and see everything mm. in the room. Mm-hmm. And so it's why the windows are open is, or why the curtains are open. But the, mm. the room itself, at least, is not, you know, hard to believe as a cheap motel somewhere. Um, and so Unremitting Despair is the name of the game mm. for Twist. But... You know, if if asked, you know, and I would probably say that between something like Oliver and mm-hmm. something like Twist, yeah. Dickens would say, oh, Twist gets the book. Mm. It understands what I was trying to do yeah. in a way that Oliver doesn't by making it all fun and dancing around with a random murder thrown in. And um, I also think it gives a unique take on the story. It updates it, but it also gives you a kind of slightly different slant on the way the kind of character dynamics work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Mm. Definitely. It's, I, think, I think it's well worth watching. Don't believe Rotten Tomatoes. Um, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the reviews quoted there apparently thought it wasn't funny enough uh, and things like that. And like, mm. I, they weren't going for that. And if you read the book, you'll see actually it's not always that funny. No. Um, there is a sort of warmth to this group, but it's but it, they're all living under the specter of, of death, even in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and here it's just kind of brought out more. So it's, yeah. Of the two, I'd probably watch Twist again before I watch The Lean. But if you want just something that actually has, you know, the book, I guess go for The Lean. But neither one really, <laughs> neither one just really takes the book and puts it on screen. No. There's been a more recent one. Um, oh, who's the director? going to bug me now I can't remember yeah Roman Polanski that's the one thank you Amy Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah I haven't seen that one yet but um, that possibly might be uh, another one worth watching if you wanted a more of a straightforward adaptation rather than a a kind of a a different take on it yeah I'd actually be very curious to see what Polanski did with with this story He, Mm. he probably would spend a lot of time on the darkness as well because it's just kind of his natural Milieu, if you will. Mm, it's his uh, environment. Yeah, it is his environment, indeed. Mm. So, yeah. 
So, well, there we are. We've summed it up. It's it's not a laugh a minute. <laughs> I no. don't think anyone's going to be rushing out to, to read the book or watch the film <laughs> straight away. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I actually I quite enjoyed reading the book. Um, I think I agree with your criticisms of it. Um, but, you know, it, it was... I found it quite a, an easy read. I think Amy had a lot of problems initially with the way Dickens used language um and i don't know whether she found it just harder to get into but i just kind of slotted straight into it and kind of went with it really well that's good he can be because he is not he's not a sort of modern day writer where you know um words are kept at a minimum (laughs) Mm, no no that's 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 for sure everything is kind of why say it in five words when you can take 10 to say the same thing and we can't really finish up on Dickens without mentioning, because we're both Doctor Who nerds, we've got to mention a little bit of The Unquiet Dead. Yeah, which which is one of my favourite episodes of that season. Yeah, I think um, that's probably my favourite of Series 1. Uh, that's that's a, always a hard... It's always a hard call for me. Season 1 is just so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but here we have, you know, you have Dickens at the end of his life, and he's doing a reading from A Christmas Carol mm-hmm. in Cardiff, which never actually happened, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and, you know ghost monsters from another planet essentially uh, yeah simon callow's great in that simon callow is great and apparently he that's the thing he's known for is his like one-man shows or whatever as dickens and sort of his dickens so landing him was a bit of a coup i think he's an authority on dickens as well isn't he i think he, he is he knows dickens very well and he's very knowledgeable on the commentary mm-hmm. um for the episode um as as is gatus who actually talks about what the episode originally was going to be outlined like and had a lot of really great characters that sounded very Dickensian, like a Mrs. Plumshoot <laughs> who ran a hotel for mediums and psychics and um, sort of very much focusing on Dickens' interest in the supernatural, which comes up a couple of times in the Oliver Twist. It just kind of mm-hmm. random supernatural sort of feeling moments. Yeah. I have um, to go back and revisit that because I haven't watched it for a while, so I might have to raid the DVD shelf and watch that again sometime. It's... It's a good one. I haven't watched it in a while either. I've seen it probably more recently than you have because I watched it a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I it it doesn't quite hold up um, under under the weight of what came after in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels a bit. Some of the moments between the Doctor and Rose feel a bit early, like when they're looks like they're facing final death, and the Doctor just seems to kind of acquiesce in the face of death and say, I'm really glad I met you. It's very sweet, but at the same time, it's like, they've only known each other a couple of days and mm. he's giving up. Yeah. Is this the doctor giving up here? It, it doesn't always quite ring true and, and it's left to Dickens to save the day, which is nice, but at the yeah. same time, it's like, it is Doctor Who, not, you know. I think for me, it's probably Dickens Mark Gates' strongest story of the ones that he's done. Uh, yeah, I think very people would argue with you on that one. I'm a bigger proponent of Mark Gatiss than almost anyone else on the planet aside from Mark Gatiss, I think is. Um, I really like his scripts. Uh, I'm not going to defend them all as masterpieces, <coughs> but I don't think any of them are terrible. I quite like the one he did last series. Night Terrors. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed Night Terrors. A lot of people mm. thought it was really uninteresting. It was kind of a bit of fluff, and I thought it was way more than that. But, no, I don't really um, enjoyed it. I thought it was quite spooky and... Mm-hmm. And also the direction on it was fantastic. The direction on that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the direction on that one really was fantastic. Um, So yeah, 
they don't uh, they do mention the singleman the singleman they do they do in the in the dickens one yeah 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 most of the references are very christmas carol in their nature but there's a reference to the signalman and there's a reference to edwin drood which was the novel dickens yes. working on when he died that's right yeah so and the death of little nell cracks me up <laughs> oh, oh yeah <laughs> forget the doctor says that he's like hysterical it's like <laughs> this is the thing that had like people in tears in the streets <laughs> when they read that little nell yeah. died and it's old curiosity shop i believe that's right um it's just sort of like uh, featuring a, a character called that. dick swiveller <laughs> <laughs> he loves those names, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. And, and this one has there's Mrs. Thingamy at the very beginning, and mm-hmm. there's Miss, Mr. Bumble, and then Mrs. Bumble later when he marries Mrs. Mm-hmm. Corny. Um, also, it's a really you know grimwig. Yeah, you know, not as many as there might be in later novels, but most of the secondary characters, Sourberry, have very sort of descriptive, interesting yeah. names. No, that's yeah. cool. So I think that pretty much sums up. Dickens. I mean, what have you been apart from reading tons of Oliver Dickens, uh, Oliver Dickens, Oliver Twist, and uh, Oliver Dickens, <laughs> Charles Twist. Yeah, yeah. Um, what else have you been up to lately? Have you last time we spoke, you were getting really sort of uh, highbrow and watching lots of opera and. <laughs> what have you been up to lately? Uh, I got a PS3 recently. So I've been playing video games. Yeah. Uh, Aside from that, I'm still doing the Odyssey thing. Um, yeah, yeah, that's still going on. I'm. I discovered a new podcast I really enjoy. Um, oh yeah, can I share it? Yeah, sure. It's probably not going to be of interest to any of your listeners or mm-hmm. you, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's done by Peter Adamson, and it's called A History of Philosophy. Oh, cool. Without any gaps, being the subtitle. Mm-hmm. And he said she does an episode a week, roughly. He's taking a couple breaks here and there. Mm-hmm. And his goal is, it's going to take years for him to do this, but he really wants to do, in like 20-minute episodes, do an entire history of philosophy without any gaps, meaning he's not, you know, we're right now, the most recent episode, which I haven't uh, downloaded yet, actually listened mm-hmm. to, it just came out this weekend, is about a sort of a follower of Aristotle from the early Roman Empire period. Um, yeah. And generally, you know, philosophy kind of, when you do it in like a survey course in college, mm-hmm. it's like Plato, Aristotle, and then you skip to like Descartes or something. Um, and if you're lucky, you do something in the thousand, fifteen hundred years in between. He's really following the trace. Leaving no stone unturned. Leaving no stone unturned. And, you know, he did, I think, 25 episodes on Plato, probably. Wow. And went on like a bunch of different dialogues. Um, and he's just really. He's a really engaging person to listen to. He's very knowledgeable, obviously. Mm-hmm. He's been on In Our Time quite a bit, so I actually knew who he was okay. already because I like the In Our Time podcast. Um, and as a, you know, as a quote-unquote philosophy student from college, even though it wasn't what I went there for, it's what I ended up studying because of the way things work. Um, it's nice just kind of not only have things brought back to mind and be able to understand what he's talking to, but have him actually teach me new things and, and listen to him talk about things that I wasn't definitely with. Um, That's what I love so, about podcasts. I listen to lots of different podcasts, and there's there's something for everyone. You know, you can just dive in, and the, you can find some really good shows. Yeah, no, completely. It's it's people who think, oh, I don't, I wouldn't like podcasts. It's like, well, why? Mm. Do you not like anything? Yeah, because there's a podcast about everything, and there are some that are you know, kind of short and punchy, and there are some that are much more long winded, like I tend to be. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there are all sorts of kinds. So whatever your interest, like my roommate loves opera, and he has he has like five opera podcasts he listens to. If you are long winded, it's in an entertaining way. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say it's a Dickensian length as opposed to a, yes. I don't know, as opposed to Tolstoyan length or something. <laughs> um, and doing. Uh, work for the Doctor Who book club, of course. We just released an yes. episode. So that always takes up time. So um, the, the one that's just come out as we're recording this was Cold Fusion. Cold Fusion, yes, by Lance Parkin. Mm, which I listened to last night. Ah. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, thank you. That's very kind mm. of you to say. It was, mm. um, it was a tricky episode in some ways because we were recording at a different time and we were uh, weren't quite finding a normal rhythm somehow. It was okay. a bit harder for well, us. Than didn't come across in the obvious. show. There was some editing involved. A bit more, mm. not a ton of editing, but a bit more editing than I usually have to do. Sounded like a pretty tricky book to cover as well, because of the way it's written. It sounded like it was the narrative was very kind of following multiple plot lines, you know, definitely. and jumping consistently between different yeah, yeah parts that, of the story. It was, it was definitely a very ambitiously written book in the sense that it had many plot strands, kind of, and, and sets of characters that you had to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and I do compare it, and, I, and it kind of was like the five doctors in that aspect where you're constantly jumping between like the different people all kind of eventually going to converge in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of what happens in cold fusion, although not quite, but it had that sort of feel. Yeah. So if you haven't checked out Eric's, uh, podcast, it's great. He does it with a guy called Sean. who's a really funny guy. Um, they've got a real good chemistry going on there. Um, so you can find you on, you're on iTunes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Doctor who book club podcast or on iTunes. Um, you can go to what you can just Google that. Um, mm-hmm. You can go to our blogspot page with the dwbcpodcast.blogspot.com. Dwbcpodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow us on Twitter at dwbcpodcast. Um, yeah, but you're if everywhere. You just, if you, yeah, we're everywhere. If you just we're on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just Google that, you'll find us. Um, and if you like the sort of nonsense I did in here, where I talk about books, <laughs> you'll probably like it. Except it's about Doctor Who. There's so. a lot to like in that program. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> yes. Well, this is this has been fun. Yeah. Well, I, it, I've been really privileged to have you on. I've had some great people on. Um, hopefully, going to get a few more episodes out. It kind of took a while to get going, but um, yeah, hopefully we'll have a few more episodes out. And if the whole experience hasn't put you off entirely, maybe we'll get you back on again. I I think I could probably be convinced to do that, provided it wasn't uh, Oliver Twisting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, may, maybe we'll do something different this time. Yeah, but I I, I like uh, I certainly like books. I like big proper books. So mm-hmm. the idea is good for me. You know, last time it was the Claudius books. This time it was Oliver Twist. I could certainly be probably convinced back to, to do something in a similar vein. Hmm. Okay, watch this space, folks. <laughs> yes, watch this space. Right, well, that pretty much wraps it up. So um, thanks ever so much, Eric, for coming on the show again. Thank you for having uh, me. No problem. And uh, until next time, thanks for listening.